is a, a text that may be familiar to, to many of us. It's a text that, that for some of us provides great comfort. And yet it is a text that for some strikes at the core of our worldly foundations. But for all of us, this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. Receive it now. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's the word of the Lord. Would you bow with me? Father, we, we come to, to this, your word, and pray that you would give us hearts that would come under the authority of your word, but that your word would be received with the power of your spirit. And so, Father, do more than teach us. Shape us. Draw us to Christ. Do this, we ask, in his name. Amen. So as we look to this text, we tend to think about ourselves, but before we think about ourselves, we've got to put ourselves in, in the disciples' place. We've got to put, put ourselves in, our, in the disciples' shoes uh, there that evening as Jesus is talking to them. And, and for the disciples, at this point in John's gospel, uh, the wheels are starting to fall off. Now, I'm not talking about a flat tire in the driveway kind of wheels falling off. I'm talking about rush hour traffic in Atlanta, wheels falling off. I'm trying to go down the highway, and there are eight lanes of traffic, maybe buzzing, maybe standstill, and I've got to figure out what's going on. You feel the anxiety? You feel the uncertainty of that moment? Now, the disciples certainly had, had heard Jesus talk about his coming death. He'd said it clearly to them three times now. But, but in hearing those words, they, they, they seemed distant. They, they seemed confusing, sort of cloudy, and they didn't seem to jive with what was their experience at the time. So, so think about the comparison between those words and, and what they were experiencing. They'd been with Jesus. They'd heard his teaching. They had seen the signs that he was performing. And every sign seemed to be greater than the one before it. And this last sign that Jesus had performed was raising Lazarus from the dead with the power of his voice. Earlier in the week had been the triumphal entry. And for the disciples, that had to have seemed like 
the first century equivalent of a New York City ticker tape parade. And it was, it was the Passover week. It was the independence celebration for the nation of Israel. You put all of that together and the disciples must have certainly felt like this is it. This is finally what we've been looking for. Jesus is going to take his rightful place on the throne and we're in the inner circle. So as, so as he takes that place, we'll get our seats. We'll be the cabinet We'll be in the inner circle, the place of prominence. Certainly, that had to have been on their mind. And yet, earlier this evening, remember, this is the night that Jesus would be arrested. They're in the upper room. They've, they've just celebrated the Passover meal. Jesus has just instituted the Lord's Supper. And earlier that evening, with all of that expectation on the disciples' minds, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. One of you will deny me. And I'm leaving. Feel the weight of that. Feel how that enters in and crashes the expectations that the disciples must have had. All that seemed so certain for them is now falling apart. And with that, Jesus opens our text today by saying, Let not your hearts be troubled. That's them. How about us? Where is your heart troubled? For some of us, it's, it's the pain of the present. And when I say pain, I mean a very real physical pain. Some of us are dealing with with the constant presence of chronic pain that is our ever-present, unwanted companion. For some, the present pain is not a physical pain, but the emotional pain that comes with, with grief over the loss of a loved one. Maybe it is the, the pain of a broken relationship. And yet, for others... What troubles our hearts is not the pain of the present, but the uncertainty of the future. The stock market's in decline. Young people are trying to figure out what they're going to do with their lives, and they look around, and it seems like everyone else around them has it all figured out. You feel it. You feel the anxiety. For all of us, there are times when our hearts are troubled, we are sent reeling. When you go reeling, where do you go? Where is that place of comfort that you have to go when you're feeling the struggles of this life all around you? Where is your safe place? Some of us, our safe place is a place of turning to effort. Everything's falling around us, so i got to pick it up. For others, maybe it's that numbing agent, whatever that numbing agent might be. For some, my personal favorite, it's the weighted blanket. <laughs> Just snug all around you. You feel the comfort of it. 
And for a moment, even if it's a brief moment, I can let those struggles, those cares go away. The disciples were desperate in this moment for a place of comfort. Everything's falling around them and they're looking for a safe place. And that's precisely what Jesus is promising them. What is that place? Verse 2 tells us that in my fa- Jesus' words, in my Father's house are many rooms. Jesus, the promise of place, is the promise of a room. A room in his Father's house. Now say that, and I know that at this point, some of us would prefer the King James translation. Because King James says not a room, but a mansion. Some of us already have our, our eyes set on that mansion. We know the architectural style that we have picked out for the mansion. But that's to miss the point. That's to miss the point because, well, first of all, when the King James translates mansion, it's using a later Latin translation. The original doesn't speak of a mansion. It speaks of, of a dwelling place. The room here is not a factor of the relative size of the place. It's carrying on the metaphor of the Father's house. It's speaking of a place in the Father's place. So what does place stir in you? All of us, I believe, have a longing for place. What does that longing look like? For some of us, it's, it's a longing that's built on the nostalgia of, of a place from long ago. For some of us, it's a longing for a place that we've never had. But either way, this longing is not mere geography. It's not mere stick and brick of a house. It's a longing to be known. It's a longing to be secure. It's a longing to be connected. It's a longing to love and be loved. The disciples they were troubled because Jesus, their dearest, closest friend, their confidant, their mentor, he has said, I'm leaving. And that, that leaving was fueling for them a longing, and so he told them, my leaving has a purpose. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, while that, that preparation speaks to the blessing of something that will come later, a hope of, of that place that will come in the future, that, that promise and, and the, or the purpose behind his leaving is also meant to sustain them and us in the now. Because Jesus says, if I go, I'll come back. If I go, I'll return. So what is that returning? There's several options for what Jesus means by this this return. On one hand, he's going to return in a few short days with his resurrection on that first Easter morning. So he could be speaking of of the Easter resurrection. 
he could be speaking of his, of his second coming, when he will come in glory to restore, to renew all things. Or he could be talking about the reunion that believers will experience with Jesus upon their death. I don't know. I'm not sure what he has in view here where he speaks of his return. All of these options on some level are appropriate, but the bottom line is this. Jesus is leaving. His separation is not permanent. It's not. It wasn't for them. It's not for us. And so Jesus offers hope for troubled hearts in the form of the promise of place. But he also makes clear that he is the only hope. Jesus is the only hope for troubled hearts. After speaking about the place, he said, you know where I'm going. And then Thomas speaks up. We, we nicknamed Thomas Doubting Thomas. He's really just honest Thomas. He says what he thinks. He says what we think. He says what we would say if we were honest enough to pipe up. And he says, Jesus, how are we supposed to know how to get to where you're going? We don't know where you're going. Imagine if this conversation were taking place today Thomas might say hey Jesus when you get there wherever you go and why don't you just drop a pin in your phone send me that pin and I'll plug it in to my my phone GPS then I can find you and guess what it'll even give me options it'll tell me do I want to ask me do I want to take the scenic route do I want to take the fastest route do I want to take the shortest route I'll choose and then I'll meet you there in that place Jesus tells Thomas and us that when he speaks of the way, he's not talking about a path. He's talking about a person. He's not trying to lay out the drive. He's not even saying, follow me where I go. He's saying, I am the way, the one and only way to the Father. How does that sit with you? That Jesus is the one and only way to the Father? Now, first of all, let's understand something. Jesus, in this statement, is making a profound statement of identity. Those of you who have been with us for a while know what I'll remind all of us, that in John's gospel account, he is presenting a series of I am statements. Those I am statements look back to Exodus chapter 3 when, when Moses encountered the Lord in a burning bush and, and the Lord sent Moses to go and, and bring his people out of bondage to slavery in Egypt. And so Moses asks, who should I say is sending me? And the Lord says, I am who I am. Tell them, I am sent you. Sounds foreign to our ears. I am in the Hebrew is Yahweh. The Lord is giving Moses and all his covenant people an intimate 
name by which they can know him. I am. And in John's gospel account, he's looking back on that and accentuating what Jesus has said and drawing out Jesus' statements of deity. But in the I am statements, he's combining his deity with with character attributes. And so Jesus would say, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is making a powerful statement of identity. He is making a statement of his deity, but he's also making a precious poignant statement of grace and with his deity he's saying i am the way i am the way to the father not for you to follow my lead i i am the one who provides access relational intimate access to the father it comes through the son And yet, with a statement of identity and a statement of grace, we cannot miss that there is a statement of exclusivity here. And for some, that exclusivity is the greatest sin. I remember the first time I encountered postmodern thought. I had no idea what those words meant. You may not know them now. But essentially, postmodernism is a way of thinking that rejects absolutes. It rejects absolute truth and instead builds a system of thinking around relativism. So, in other words, the postmodern person would say, truth is true for me. It's my truth. And your truth is true for you. It is your truth. And so don't try and impose your truth on me, and I won't try and impose my truth on you, and we'll all just get along. We'll believe what we want. We'll create whatever reality we desire. You can see how it leads to some weird destinations that we're experiencing today. Here's the other thing. If everyone is defining their own truth, exclusivity is not only offensive, it is a foreign concept. I first recognized this, I first encountered it when I was gathered with a group of friends who bristled at this thought that Jesus would be the only way to salvation. Have you ever thought about that? Have you asked that question? Maybe you're here this morning asking it. Today, could there be another way of salvation? Could there be another option besides Jesus, another path I might take? My friends wrestled with that and bristled at this notion of exclusivity because it didn't seem fair to them. They asked, what about the good person? What about the person who is sincere in their religious devotion, whatever that religion might be so if they are sincere in their devotion to for instance Allah aren't they okay isn't it after all just a matter of whether or not a person is true in their convictions can't they choose the scenic route or the fastest route or the shortest route as long as they get to that destination well there's problems 
with that. And the first of which is this. That thought has no basis in anything other than my own desire. It has no basis in Scripture. It is, in essence, a man-made religion that intentionally rejects the Word of God. Jesus says, I am the way because I am the fulfillment of truth. All truth points to me, and as such, I am the bestower of the source of life. My friends struggled with this notion, and I struggled with their relative thought. In my thinking, Scripture is clear, and that's reason enough to believe it. And to reject that truth is to reject the word of truth. If you don't know this about me, I can tend to be a black and white person. <laughs> sometimes that's helpful, sometimes it's not. It's a confession, okay? There is absolute truth in the Word of God is an absolute truth that is inerrant and infallible. But I also have learned in thinking through this with my friends that I need to unpack this a little bit more. Yes, we need to look to the truth of Scripture, but not only is this an issue of the authority of the Word, it's also an issue of what do we mean by salvation? What is your notion of salvation? Have you ever taken time to actually think about that? Is your notion of salvation simply avoiding punishment? In other words, at the end of my life, I don't want to go to hell, whatever hell is, and so salvation is avoiding hell. Now, if that is your notion of salvation, what then is heaven? Is it an eternal, leisurely retirement with a nice house? Sort of afternoon on the shuffleboard court and then a nice meal afterwards that's our understanding of place then it makes sense that there might be multiple ways to get there after all when we think about our retirement we we can choose whatever investment vehicle we want to we want to trust in we we can choose where our 401k or IRA is going to be invested if we're thinking about retirement in that way. Some of us think about salvation the way we think about retirement. And if so, sure, think about different ways to get there. But that system of rewards is devoid of any semblance of the God who is holy, holy, holy. Praise be to God. The scripture tells us that salvation is in him and salvation is with him. The word of God points us to a more beautiful understanding of salvation and a more beautiful notion of place. It points us to place that is in presence with him. If we go back to Jesus's Words. He says in verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself. This promise 
that Jesus makes to his people is not a promise of a mansion on a hill, but a place with the Father. The person who rejects Jesus as the way, they may be trying to avoid punishment and wrath, but they are missing the biblical definition of our true destination. This is a glorious eternity spent in the presence of our Savior. It is a place that is with Jesus. This is His promise. But for this promise to be fulfilled, something radical is needed within us. Because being in His presence is not a reward for being nice. Being in His presence is not a reward for being sincere in whatever form of religious devotion we choose. It is a matter of being holy. And none of us are holy. None of us desire holiness on our own. What radical thing that must take place is a radical transformation of our hearts. Because the issue behind wanting multiple options is not ultimately about the fastest, most efficient route. Why do we resist the exclusivity of Jesus Christ? Because we don't want to bow the knee. We don't want to submit to His Lordship. Like Frank Sinatra, we want to sing, I did it my way. God's way is Jesus. The exclusive statement of salvation that we read here, the word would tell you is a statement of hate. I have seen so many talk show hosts try and manipulate some Christian into some gotcha moment of saying that they believe Jesus is the only way so that they can pin the label of Christian hate on them. But the statement that Jesus is the one and only way is not a statement of hate. It is a statement of love and grace. Because Jesus is not saying my way or the highway. He's saying I became the way at the cost of my life. And in me, your place is secure. Your destination is booked. I've already paid the tab. Trust me. And that trust is our simple response to his exclusive yet free offer of the gospel salvation that we have in Christ. We go back full circle to verse 1. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Following that that encouragement, there's an exhortation. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Does it strike you odd that Jesus in the upper room, surrounded by the disciples who knew him best, who had spent the previous three years with him, in that context Jesus would say, believe in me? It kind of does me. It strikes me odd, or at least it strikes me odd in the way you used to think about belief. See, I used to think about belief in terms of believing in the existence of Jesus. Believing 
that Jesus was a historical person. And if that's your definition of belief, it would be odd for Jesus to tell those disciples who are in his presence, believe that I exist. But Jesus is saying more than belief in his existence. He's calling them to action. He's saying that to believe is to trust, to act on what you have seen and heard. That is most basic. To trust is to enact a transfer. A transfer of my personal confidence onto something or someone else. It's to, it's to transfer my personal dependence off of self and onto something else. When I lean on this pulpit, I trust that it's going to hold me up. I am placing a trust and a confidence on it, not on myself. To place our trust in Jesus is to take our hope off of self, off of our goodness, off of our niceness, off of our sincerity, and to place it on someone else, onto the person of Jesus Christ. his exhortation to the disciples as they consider their own troubled hearts. Jesus just told them, let not your heart be troubled. Why would he tell them that? They had reason. He's just predicted that one of them is going to betray him. One of them is going to deny him and that he's going to leave. They had reason for anxiety. Would back up. To John 13, verse 21, we read that Jesus himself was troubled. It tells us that Jesus was troubled in spirit. Is Jesus being hypocritical? Is he saying it's all right for me to be troubled, but, but not you? No. He's saying, transfer your trouble to me. I take it. Transfer your sin to me. I take it. Transfer your hope for security to me. I take it. Transfer your need for identity, for worth to me. I take it. Believe in me. Trust me. Friends, the gospel is radical. The gospel is exclusive and the gospel is personal. And when we miss the personal, relational nature of the gospel, that that is when we struggle with the exclusivity of the gospel. Understand this. Jesus uses marriage terminology when he speaks about the gospel. And he is the bridegroom. And he is the bridegroom who pledges to be faithful. To love. To provide for. To protect There's only way, one way into this marriage. And he paid the way. He paid the bride price. At the cost of his own life. He purchased the church, his bride. His love is the antidote for our resistant hearts. The only response to his gracious initiating love is to believe, is to trust, is to transfer it all to Jesus. 
our exclusive groom who calls us his beloved bride. Dear friends, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in him. Consider that your exclusive invitation. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We praise you that you are the way. You are the truth. And in you, we have life. We praise you and we ask that you would give us hearts that would come under your authority, but that would receive your power. And so I pray this day that with your power, you would do a radical work of transformation in our hearts. That there be any here this day who have resisted your way, seeking their own, that they would see the beauty, the beauty of your life-giving sacrifice for them. I pray that you would grant the miracle this morning of new life. Do this, we ask, for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen.